Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, good morning. Welcome here. Thank you for joining us today. If you're watching uh, via our live stream, uh, everything will look normal to you right now. But if you are with us in person, you'll know that I'm coming to you uh, via video. Uh, The reason for that is I came down with COVID this last week, and I've been recovering at home all week. Uh, And this video is being recorded Saturday morning. So I'm sorry that I can't be with you here live, uh, but I'm excited that we have the technology uh, to make this still work. Well, regardless of how this week has gone for me, uh, today is still a good day. When I was a youth leader in California, I remember sitting next to a a 15-year-old youth uh, during a Sunday morning communion service. Uh, The tradition uh, at that church was similar to ours. We gathered the elements, the cracker and the grape juice, and uh, the grape juice was in little plastic cups. And, uh, and we had those elements together, and we, we sat, uh, and the pastor prayed over the, the elements. And as the pastor was praying, I was sitting next to this youth, and all of a sudden I heard, crack. And I thought, oh no, I know what happened. And so the pastor said, amen. I looked to my side to see the young man sitting there, and he was covered in grape juice. He had squeezed his cup so tightly that it had gotten all over him. And I thought, what a great picture picture of what this tradition actually symbolizes. When we take communion, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. With the broken cracker or bread, we remind ourselves that Jesus' body was physically broken for us on the cross. With the juice or the wine, we remind ourselves that Jesus' blood was poured out for us, a sign of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, covering us and washing us of all of our wrongdoings. So when that youth got covered in the juice, I thought it was a fitting reminder that Jesus's blood covers us, which is what we were celebrating that moment at communion. We're in the middle of our Meaning of Oranges series, where we are rediscovering the way of Jesus. Today, we're looking at communion. We call it communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, and there are many different traditions around this very old practice. I want to take a look at the practice of communion in three parts. In the first part, we will look at the the tradition Jesus changed into communion, the tradition of Passover. In the second part, we'll look at the strange communion of John 6, where Jesus invites his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And in the third part, we will look at our current day expression of communion, how we do it and why. The tradition of communion goes all the way back to Jesus Christ, but the practice of communion came from something that was much older. On the night Jesus was betrayed, just before his crucifixion, the disciples sat down to celebrate the Passover meal a meal that had been celebrated for 1,500 years prior to Jesus' birth. Jesus took the common elements from that meal and breathed new life into them. 
revealing to the disciples the real meaning behind the Passover meal. At the Passover meal, the Jewish people would remember the original Passover that had occurred with Moses as God was setting his people free from Egypt. Back in the book of Exodus, we, we read about how God wanted his people, the Israelites, set free from slavery in Egypt. But, but Pharaoh was hard-hearted and would not let his people go, not let God's people go. And so God sent ten plagues against Egypt to convince Pharaoh. The tenth plague was the worst plague, the plague of the firstborn. Every firstborn male throughout Egypt would be killed on the same night unless Pharaoh released the Israelites or unless a family took a perfect lamb, sacrificed it, and put its blood on their doorposts. Well, on that very night, every firstborn male in all of Egypt was killed, except those who had the blood of the perfect lamb on their doorposts. Those houses were passed over, and the Israelites were freed from slavery and made a hasty exit out of town. God told the Israelites to celebrate this Passover every year, sacrificing a perfect lamb to remind themselves that they were freed from slavery and saved from death. So Jesus takes this Passover meal, a tradition that had been celebrated for 1,500 years, and gives it new meaning. This Passover is about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect lamb who frees us from slavery and saves us from death if we apply his blood to the doorposts of our heart. During the Passover meal, look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus created the celebration of communion out of the celebration of Passover, especially focusing on the bread and the wine. That's the first part, which gets us ready for the second part, where we look at John 6. Just before we look at John 6, I just want, to, want you to take a note of how the Passover took place during the time of Moses. This is going to be important for us later. Now, in John 6, Jesus invites his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which sounds a little weird, to say the least, don't you think? So let's get some context here. Back in John 5, Jesus heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus heals him and tells him to pick up his mat and walk, so he does that. Jesus leaves the scene, and some of the other Jewish people get angry at the man for carrying the mat because it was the Sabbath day, and you were not supposed to do any work or carry your mat on the Sabbath day. The people completely miss the fact that this man has just been healed. They choose to instead focus on the law. This incident brings on further debate about the breaking of the law, so Jesus ends the conversation with two very important points. Here they are. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And then Jesus says in John 5, 45 to 47, 
Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now remember how the Passover was during Moses' time. This bit about the law is also about Moses too. Moses is the one who brought the law to the Israelites. And Moses is also the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus is saying here, Moses' writings, Scripture, the law, even the Passover, all of these things point to Jesus. And in Jesus, not in these other things, in Jesus there is life. Now this is one of the themes of the book of John, right? The beginning of the book of John in John chapter 1 verse 17. Here's what John records. For the law was given through Moses. That would have, everybody who would have read that would have gone, yes, the law. The, the law was given through the great patriarch Moses. This is wonderful. But look at what John says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John takes his readers from a dependence on Moses to a dependence on Jesus, and we will see this pop up again as we continue on in John chapter 6. So all this happens, this stuff that I just spoke about, and then we begin John chapter 6. In this chapter, Jesus goes to a different region, and it says here that he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with only five small loaves and two small fish. It is a great miracle. But there's also something here that I don't want you to miss. Look at the very beginning of this story in John 6. Just before Jesus feeds all the people, here's what John records. John chapter 6, verse 4. The Jewish Passover feast was near. John wants you to put this all together. There is something special connected to the Passover and to the law and to Moses that is about to take place. So the story goes like this. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then this happens, John 6, 14 to 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people recognized this as a miracle and, and then thought they would set Jesus up as their king, a king who could meet their physical needs. Obviously, he had just done that. But Jesus didn't want to do this, so he left. He leaves. The disciples <clears throat> jump into a boat and leave uh, for some reason without Jesus. I, I never understand that. Jesus is off praying. They get in a boat and they take off. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what happens. They go across the lake. When they're about three and a half miles out from the shore, Jesus comes walking past them, walking on the water. It's a pretty cool moment, but it's not super relevant to what we're talking about today, so we'll just leave that for later. The next morning, the 5,000 people that Jesus had fed realize that Jesus is no longer on their side of the lake, and they see that a boat is missing, and so they, they think he must have gone to the other side of the lake. So they quickly gather some other boats, travel across the lake. They find Jesus, and when they find them, find Jesus, Jesus says this to them in verse 26. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal, to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. To which the people respond, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice what we keep coming back to here. The people point Jesus back to the manna in the desert and back again to the time of Moses. The people had already seen Jesus provide for them, performing a miraculous sign where he feeds 5,000 people with just a small amount of food. But they want another sign. What they want is they want Jesus to be their king, and they want Jesus to give them food every day. They're still stuck on being physically fed, though, not realizing that Jesus has come to feed them spiritually. Look at what Jesus says, starting in verse 32. Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To which the people respond, Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Which sounds like a really great response, but the people are looking for physical bread, so Jesus pushes it further. This starts to get a little bit strange. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. This is Jesus speaking. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The people then get into a little bit of a debate amongst themselves, leading Jesus to say again more emphatically, starting in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, that first part of that passage makes sense, but Jesus ends it a bit strange, doesn't he? This bread is my flesh. And it sounded strange to those that were there, too. Look at their reaction. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? To which Jesus replies, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. That, that's, that's a crazy statement, don't you think? Like, that seems outlandish, but we'll understand it better in just a little while. After Jesus said this, many of his disciples leave him. That 5,000, they leave, they go off, and probably more than that. They say this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Well, it is a hard teaching. What's happening here? There are clues for us here to understand this passage. The first is in this passage, and the second is connected to a, another passage a little later on. This whole story began with 5,000 men plus women and children seeking to G make Jesus king because he fed them with physical bread. Jesus turns it around and says that like the manna in the desert, 
He is the bread that comes from heaven. The difference, though, is that eating the manna in the desert still led to death. But eating Jesus leads to life. But not physically eating Jesus. To eat Jesus means to put your faith in Him. Look at what Jesus says here in, in John 6, 47 to 48. I tell you the truth. He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. You understand, Jesus is not actually made of bread. The difference between the manna and Jesus is the difference between the physical and the spiritual. The clue provided for us here and for Jesus' disciples in this passage is when Jesus says in, in John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh accounts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of, of the Spirit and life. This is a spiritual issue, not a physical, fleshly one. The manna in the desert may have kept you physically alive, but I will keep you spiritually alive. The other clue in, is in the words Jesus uses in John six fifty six. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Do you recognize those closing words? Remains in me and I in him. John uses those words several times throughout his gospel, but particularly nine chapters later when Jesus is giving another metaphor in John 15, where Jesus says, John 15, 1, I am the true vine. John 15, 4, remain in me, and I will remain in you. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now you realize that Jesus is not actually a vine, and you are not actually branches. This is another metaphor. It is symbolic of the point Jesus is trying to make. That's an important part to understand about this passage. It is a metaphor, a symbolic point Jesus is trying to make. We must remain in Jesus if we are going to find our true nourishment, and we are to metaphorically eat Jesus' flesh to remain in Him, to draw our strength and power from the source, not literally plugged into Him like a branch, and not literally cannibalizing Jesus. Jesus knows that most of these people that he just fed are only looking for him to meet their physical needs. Now, Jesus does meet their physical needs. That's an important thing as well. Jesus does meet their physical needs, but that is not his primary objective. Jesus came to save us spiritually for all of eternity, and we participate in that by believing in him, metaphorically eating his flesh. This metaphorical understanding is important as we move into our third part, where we look at our current day practice of communion. There are basically four ways that Christian churches view communion. The Catholic view and, and some other churches on communion is called transubstantiation, which is the view that the cracker and the juice literally become the body and blood of Jesus. This view says that when you eat the cracker and drink the juice, it still tastes like cracker and juice, but it has been transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's, so that's one view. Now, 
there's another view. When, when Luther, Martin Luther, broke away from the Catholic Church 500 years ago, uh, communion was one of the big disagreements. The Lutheran view of communion is called consubstantiation, otherwise known as the sacramental union, which is the view that the cracker and juice do not change, but Jesus's presence is in, with, and under, kind of um, all around covering and, and encapsulating uh, the elements and eaten together with them. These first two views are considered the real presence views, where Jesus's real presence is physically and literally present in the elements of communion. These two views look at John 6 and see Jesus speaking in a much more literal sense about eating his body and drinking his blood. When a person takes these views, especially the transubstantiation view, you will see that they treat the elements in a much more careful way. I remember having communion in an Anglican church about 25 years ago. I was visiting some churches and, and trying to see what their traditions were like. Um, and it was, it was quite a neat experience. The priest prepared the elements, pouring wine into a common cup and, and breaking, uh, breaking some bread into a dish. The priest then served communion up at the front. We all went up there and knelt at the altar, and, and she gave us a wafer, and we drank out of the common cup together. Now, when you drink out of a common cup together, um, they use uh, real wine with a very high alcohol content because it helps to keep the, the stuff clean and no germs gets passed around. Now, I was not prepared for drinking real wine with such a high alcohol content. And though I think I have a pretty good poker face, I'm sure that I did a little whoo after I drank the communion wine. After we had all had communion, there was a fair bit left. And since this Anglican church took the view of consubstantiation, where Jesus is in, with, and under the elements, they treated the elements as very holy. The, the priest then is expected to finish up the leftovers. So this priest did break up the remaining wafers into the cup, drink it down, then poured a little more wine into the cup to catch the remaining particles and drank that down as well. Nothing was to be left, and especially nothing was to be thrown away. In their view, that would be a heinous act against the body and blood of Jesus. There are other views that don't take such a careful, uh, doesn't take so much care with the communion elements. Like our view, we don't usually uh, take such care with the communion elements. You won't find me after communion uh, finishing up all the communion myself. In fact, um, yeah, we, we, we usually just take those downstairs and dispose of them in a, in a different way. But a different way, uh, a different view around communion is from Calvin. And Calvin changed up the term real presence. And instead of believing that the real presence of Christ was there with the elements, um, Calvin used a different term. He talked about the real spiritual presence of Christ. Calvin described communion as a symbolic, as symbolic but also being a bit mysterious. His view was that either during communion, Christ came down to be present spiritually with the people receiving communion, or the people were taken up to heaven to be with Christ during the celebration of communion. The, the cracker and the juice remained cracker and juice, uh, but Jesus was really present in a spiritual way. 
Then the fourth view was from a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who was a compatriot of Luther's, but who thought that Luther didn't go far enough to distance himself from the Roman Catholic Church. Zwingli's view on communion is the memorial view, which focuses on communion as an opportunity for public testimony to the death and resurrection of Jesus. In, other view, in the other views, particularly the first two, communion is an essential element for one's salvation. In Zwingli's view, salvation was already procured, and the communion celebration was a sign of a grace already received. And while Christ is with us as He is always with us, when two or three are gathered in His name, the elements are merely symbolic of His body and His blood. Now, we here at BAC hold most closely to Zwingli's memorial view, where communion is a chance for public testimony done as a symbolic remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection, a sign of a salvation that has already been received. I would also say that Calvin's description of communion as somewhat mysterious is also something that we would hold to, especially as we consider that Jesus is always with us. So even as we remember and symbolically take the cracker and the juice, Jesus is here with us, not in the cracker and juice, but encouraging and strengthening us as we share together. Now, another facet of communion is that because of these different views, in many traditions, the priest is the only person who can preside over communion. But because we believe communion is symbolic, and because we additionally believe in the priesthood of all believers, anyone and everyone is able to preside over communion. In fact, as we looked earlier at how Jesus took the common elements of the Passover celebration and used them to celebrate the first communion celebration, I think that any common elements and any common times can become opportunities for a communion celebration. Consider sitting at your table for supper. You invite your neighbors over, and you have a, a great conversation about Jesus and who He is and what He's done. Consider stopping for a moment. Consider remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps you have bread and juice there to symbolically represent His body and His blood, to remind everyone of the sacrifice Jesus has made and that He rose from the dead. You can worship Jesus by sharing communion right there together at your own little dinner table, just with the common elements that you have on hand. And now I think it's important, of course, for us to treat the Lord's table with a, a certain amount of care. We don't want to treat as common the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's not a common thing. That's a holy thing. That's an amazing thing. So we don't want to treat the death and resurrection as a common thing. But if we stop and remember, can we not take those things that are common, some bread and some juice, and treat them as special in our homes as a chance to remember Jesus and worship? I think that's the beauty of all of this. No matter where we are, we can worship Jesus together by breaking bread, by sharing a cup, and by remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at now Paul's recording of the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this communion celebration was taking place at the church's regular meal together. They had lots of food and drink, and in some tradition, they would, they, some way, some tradition, some kind of custom that they would have had that would have been particular to them, they would take some of the bread that was on the table, and they would break it, and they'd take a cup, and they'd drink it, and they would remember, they would remember the Lord. They took the common food that was there at their potluck meal. They would take that common food, and they would use it in a special way to remember Jesus. So as a way to close off our time together here, we want to take the common items of crackers and grape juice that we have here at the front and at the back of the church, just normal crackers and grape juice. And if you're at home, you can grab whatever common elements you have there as well, maybe a, a couple pieces of bread or maybe some crackers or maybe some, a juice box or something like that. And we can share in the Lord's Supper together. Now, we celebrate open communion here, which means that every believer, regardless of what background or church you belong to, every believer can share in, the, in communion with us. The only prerequisite is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to hand things off to Pastor Amy now, who will lead you in, in, uh, in taking communion together. Blessings on you. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.